Good morning, Crosspoint Church. Good morning, online friends. Thank you for joining us today on this uh, Labor Day weekend. Feels like summer. Didn't feel like summer maybe early this morning, but does now. I just wanted to mention, we've mentioned, uh, Pastor Ben already mentioned that we're starting our discipleship series next week, and Dr. Laurel Buckingham will be here to kick off that, that uh, first sermon in that series. Some of you know that name, maybe you don't. He's been a lifelong friend of mine. He's been uh, pastoring for <clears throat> 62 years, but you'll never believe it when you hear him, when you see him, and uh, preaches with great passion. Uh, pastored the Moncton Wesleyan Church almost 45 years, and we're delighted to have him here next week. Thank you for your response to gear up. We've been talking about gearing up for the fall, and the cash total now is over $21,000. Thank you, Crosspointers. Thank you, online contributors. Appreciate it. There's still some pledged money yet to come. And, of course, we, can, uh, we made a budget of 20, but we can, we can gear up even more if uh, more comes in, and we'll do that. Thank you for your excellent response. Uh, standing in the parking lot just previous to the uh, 9 o'clock service, I saw a young man coming towards me. I couldn't believe I was seeing him. We've been praying for him here at Cross Point, his family and friends. His name is Matt Young. He lives just across the parking lot over here and diagnosed with a brain tumor two weeks ago. And last Monday, uh, they removed it. The doctor says a very successful clean surgery tumor right here behind his ear. And I'm out there in the parking lot, and he's walking towards me. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm a miracle. Now he wasn't. Isn't that remarkable? He said, I can't come in this morning. I just saw you in the parking lot and wanted you to come and thank you and your people, uh, those that know us, uh, for your prayers. Anyway, that was kind of a great lift. This is our last day today uh, dealing with a great Bible story, and I'll bet you that I'm preaching to you on this day. Maybe you've never heard a sermon, a Labor Day, a Labor Day weekend sermon. Have you ever heard a sermon on work? Anyone, anywhere? Doesn't take me long to count the hands there. No, that'd be a rare subject. Uh, I feel the Father has laid this on my hand to speak to you about this vital subject. So, Father, open our minds and hearts now as we share your word, and may it be your word, not just my words, your words, a message from you to us. And may we not only hear it with our ears, let it sink in, change our hearts, change our thinking, change the way we speak, change the way we act. Let it be this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. In the very first book of the Bible, that would of course be the book of Genesis and chapter 24 is recorded an intriguing event in the life of Abraham, of the Abraham family. Abraham by now, when we join the story, is an old man. Scripture calls him a very old man. His wife Sarah's recent death bring it to his mind, a fact that he has not attended to a very important family matter and the matter of finding a son for his wife Isaac. Now back in that culture, this would be foreign to us today, it would be the fathers who found the wives for their sons. 
still ought to be that way, seems to me. I'd like to have more input than maybe I'm allowed to give for my kids and grandkids. And so uh, Isaac, of course, now is 40. So I would imagine on occasion Isaac, Isaac is giving his old dad the elbow saying, Dad, what about the wife? You haven't found me a wife yet. And so uh, this particular marriage was even stranger in that Abraham himself wasn't going to do the job. Old Abe, and he is an old man by now, he delegates the task to his chief uh, friend, foreman, and personal aide. Well, at the time of this story, Abraham isn't living in what has now present-day Israel. He's in a foreign land, and he doesn't want his boy to marry a foreigner in the land where Abraham's now living. He wants him to marry a girl from the old country. So he sends his assistant on a several-day journey to do a wife search for his son. So Abe's loyal right-hand man, what does he do? Well, he takes this job. He takes it serious. He organizes a caravan of 10 camels, Scripture tells us, and, he, and they're loaded down with gifts, or more specifically, the best of everything his master owned on these camels, and off he goes. Now, I want you to think just for a minute about the job facing this foreman. He has to persuade some young woman that he finds to accept his boss's son as a husband sight unseen. Doesn't seem too likely, does it? Now, of course, it does help that old Abraham is loaded. She might see the 10 camels and and be convinced just by all the stuff that she's going to be offered. But think about it. A blind date is one thing. A blind marriage is another whole category. So this servant, he has to convince this woman that he finds to leave her family, leave her home, leave her people, and marry someone she's never seen, and go live in a distant land permanently. So I'm thinking that as this servant travels, he has to be getting uptight. He has to be thinking, this is crazy. <laughs> who's, going, who's going to accept such a proposal? So he prayed. Now, there's a good thing to do if you're facing something you think is a little difficult to do. Pray. And he prayed, and his prayer went like this. Oh, Lord, give me success. Give me a sign so that I'll know I'm choosing the right girl. I want, Lord, the one you choose. Then he gets specific. Listen to this. Grant me a woman who will volunteer to do more than I ask her to do. Then I'll know she's the one for Isaac. So he's still praying. He's at a well outside of a village. And he just finishes his prayer. And he looks up. And a woman is coming to the well to draw water with her water pot. She's a very beautiful young woman woman according to the Bible. Her name is Rebecca. She fills her water pot and begin, turns to begin to leave the well when our weary traveler steps up and says, would you please give me a drink? And her response goes like this, yes, drink. And when you finish, I'll draw water for your camels too. Now, Talk about doing more than she was asked to do. I don't know how much you know about camels. 
I don't know much about them either. So I googled the whole camel thing, and here's what I discovered. A camel who has gone several days since his last fill-up, which only camels can do. Now you know why you see them in pictures and movies or whatever out in very dry desert areas because they can go for days without a drink. So a camel who's gone several days can drink, you hearing this now, 20 to 30 gallons of water in a little over 10 minutes. 20 to th one camel? And, and there were 10 camels in the caravan. That's a lot of work for Rebecca. That may be 200 to 300 gallons of water. For her, that would be two hours work. A lot of work and there probably was a lineup at the well it being the time of day when people came to the well well no wonder no wonder the servant worshiped and thanked God for guiding him to the right woman who said yes I will do what you ask but I will do much much more I'll draw water for your camels too now the rest of the story read it this afternoon when you go home Genesis 24 uh, there's a lot more details than I'm giving you here when he explained his mission to Rebecca and what he was there for, she went home and consulted with her family and agreed to go with this servant, and she became Isaac's wife. Now, what I want you to notice, though, is that the words of Rebecca and her ability, her willingness to go beyond and do the extra demonstrate an admirable attitude and demonstrates a remarkable strength of character. When she said the words, yes, here's a drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too, with those words, she became beautiful in spirit as well as in physical appearance. By performing a, this simple act as part of her daily routine, she modeled a principle that has become known today, you've heard this expression, as second mile Christianity, which is my subject today. I'll return to that phrase in a few minutes. Rebecca's action give us a picture of a work ethic which is far too rare in our culture. So on this Labor Day weekend, when we're enjoying a day tomorrow off of work, and we celebrate that as we should, I want us to take a look for these few minutes at work from Rebecca's perspective. So I want to begin by sharing with you three basic assumptions about work. And here's the first. You agree? Number one, work is a privilege. It is a privilege. God created man and immediately, read all about it, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, immediately after he created man, the scripture tells us even before he created the woman, the Bible tells us this, and I'm quoting from the book, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and care for it. The first thing that God did for Adam is give him work to do. God blessed him with work, and I declare to you today, blessed are you when you have work to do. It's true. It's a privilege. Back in 1978, that would be 42 years ago, David Allen Coe penned the words to a song that Johnny Paycheck put to music and sang it, and it became a huge hit that all of you country music fans will recognize, although I'm not going to sing it. But the words to his song go like this. Well, that foreman, he's a regular dog. 
The line boss is a fool. Got a brand new flat top haircut. This is the 70s, remember? The brush cut. Man, he thinks he's cool. One of these days I'm going to blow my top and sucker, he's going to pay. Lord, I can't wait to see their faces when I get the nerve to say, and there's a half a dozen of you in here already humming the tune. You're here, I know you are. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Now listen, it wasn't just country music fans that liked that old song. There were the people hummed it and sang it and quoted it. Why? Because it's a great song? No, it's not a great song. But it caught the sentiment of a lot of people. For a lot of people, it captured their work ethic. And what is that work ethic? Work is a drag. But it isn't. Or, I declare to you, it shouldn't be. We ought to view work as a privilege. Here's the second assumption of three then I'll get to the main message of the morning. Here's the second assumption. Work is a privilege and work is an opportunity. Two hours of extra work for Rebecca turned into an opportunity of a lifetime. You see it? Work is an opportunity to experience the gratification of a job well done. Work is it's an opportunity to be of service. It's an opportunity to contribute to society. Many today don't share this thoroughly biblical Rebecca idea. Many people see so much work for so much pay and too little of it. But I declare to you on the basis of God's word that work is an opportunity for every one of us who claim the name Christ follower to demonstrate winsome, attractive Christianity, to, de to demonstrate a Rebecca-like attitude towards work to demonstrate a respect for your employer and to demonstrate second-mile Christianity. So work is a privilege. Work is an opportunity. Here's the third basic assumption. Work is a benefit. It's a benefit to you. We're inclined to conclude that maybe Rebecca's stellar character led to her great work ethic. I suggest... The reverse might be true. Maybe Rebecca's great work ethic developed her stellar character, you think? I'm declaring to you this morning on the basis of God's work that work is a benefit. It's a benefit to you physically, mentally, emotionally, and yes, spiritually. Yes, it is. Wally's story has been replayed thousands of times, especially in this last 40 or 50 years, and especially so among the Freedom 55 group. You know what I mean when I say Freedom 55? There's a whole segment of our culture today that looks toward 55 as the work, when I, as the day when I'm finally going to be done with this drudgery called work, and I'm going to retire at 55. Well, Wally was a true public servant. He was the town clerk in, in the town of Nova Scotia from the mid-1950s well into the 1990s. He turned 90 this past winter, and because I'm his former pastor, I gave him a call and just wished him a happy birthday. He retired 25 years ago at 65 years of age, got the gold watch, and entered the good life. No, he didn't. Problems ensued, and Wally is not that untypical. 
Some of the problems were physical, but not mostly. They were psychological. He experienced some depression, a meaninglessness, not sure if that's a word or not, tis now, a meaninglessness enveloped him, uh, even though Wally was a strong believer. Trouble came. The benefit of, of meaningful daily work for Wally was gone, and with it, for him, came trouble. So I'm declaring to you this morning, believe it, work is a benefit. Work is a benefit for you at every stage of life, from childhood chores. I wish childhood chores were more common. They were common when I was a kid. I had chores I had to do. From childhood chores to retirees, hobbies, and volunteer work, work is a benefit. So those are my basic assumptions. Work is a privilege, it's an opportunity, and it's a benefit. And now let me take the last few minutes of this message to talk to you about the, the three levels, or let me call them the three ways for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to view work. And here's the, here's the bottom level, the bottom step. It would be this, duty demands. And I say to you, that's sub-Christian. Duty demands. The teachers of the law in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, that's what they did. They studied the law and they complied with the law, but always to the letter. And they knew what was demanded and they did it and no less, but not one bit more than they were required to do. That's duty demands. And I declare to you, and Jesus affirms it, as you'll see here, that's sub-Christian. It's a sub-Christian view. When I was nine, I was attend, uh, 19, I mean, I was attending teacher's college here in the city. Now, that's been swallowed up by the, on the UMB campus. There's a building up there at the back called Marshall Davery Hall. That used to be teacher's college. And uh, I was attending, and I was in my second year, and I thought, I don't want to teach school. And the bright lights of the city of Toronto attracted me, and so I quit college, and off I went to the big city. I landed a job at Confederation Life Insurance Company in downtown Toronto, and I sat in a sea of desks. I could turn my head like this and see 55 or 60 desks just like mine, facing a bank of elevators and a huge clock on the wall in front of us. A clock that, a clock that binged or chirped or chimed or whatever it is that clocks do. At 8.25, we had to punch a clock, and if you stuck your card in the clock and it was 8.26, that would not be a good thing. That would be a demerit. And so we wanted to be there at 8.25, and then it chirped or chimed or binged or whatever, again at 4.35, indicating the end of the workday. Then we would finish up and tidy up our desks a little bit and take our card and go up and punch the clock and go on home. Except for Peter. He stopped working. He stopped working. He had a desk at the front of everyone else's, closest to the clock. He would stop working five or six minutes ahead of the 4.35 quit work time, and, and then he would be off and running. When that clock sounded, no one ever beat Peter to the clock. His card always read 435. Now, most of us, his co-workers, 
those of us at the bottom of the ladder at this big company, we were amused by what Peter did, but his supervisor viewed what Peter did with disgust. Hear me today, follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus abhorred the attitude of mechanical exactness. He, he spoke against living by duty demands. He, he, he's teaching that it's sub-Christian to live by the motto, well, I gotta, so I'll do what I have to do to get by. No, no, that's sub-Christian. Bill Hybels, former pastor of the mega church outside of the city of Chicago, wrote these words some years ago, but I think he's right on. Hear what he said. Work seems to have risen to the status of the number one necessary evil in our country. The average person endures the weekly grind only by relishing the anticipation of a workless weekend. And nearly everyone plans for an early retirement. Even Christians share this view. They believe that labor came about by default rather than by the design of God. They envision God screaming at Adam and Eve in relentless anger. You, relent, you despicable sinners. There's only one thing horrible enough to be fitting a fitting punishment for your disobedience. You shall work, work, work. The picture of human labor is painted with sadistic, vengeful strokes. Hybels is making the point, no, no, absolutely no, that's not right. That's not Christian, and it's certainly not Rebecca. Duty demands, that's less than Christian. It's sub-Christian. So let me take you up a step now. There are three. Let's come up one step at a higher view of work. And here's the second step. Duty conscious. And that is Christian. Duty conscious. In our Bible story, we learned that this water pot task was the daily routine for Rebecca and the other women of the village. It was their duty, which they accepted. Rebecca obviously did her duty cheerfully. And she remained winsome and respectful. She was duty conscious. Hear this. Our workmates and our people we work with and our employers are unimpressed with minimum requirement Christ followers. Integrity in the workplace uh, and in the neighborhood and in the community where we live involves more than ethical and moral uprightness on our part. Uh, it involves, hear this now, integrity, integrity in the workplace involves diligence in our daily, mundane, routine work. It involves doing our daily job well in a winsome, courteous way. Being duty conscious that's Christian. I would say it's basic, fundamental Christianity. It's boot camp Christianity. But there's another step. Here's the last step up I share with you this morning. It's duty plus. That's second mile Christianity. Now, many of you know, you've heard the expression, I've referred to it a couple of times already, when someone says, you know, I asked them to do something and they went the second mile. You all understand what that means. They did more than they were asked. But let me take you back to the origin of those words spoken by the master 
himself. Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 5 and verse 41, Jesus speaking. It's from that great Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. Now, that might sound like a strange thing for Jesus to say, but you need to understand this. The law of the land during those days said that anyone in government service, that would include a soldier, could come up to any citizen and demand, carry my gear, carry my backpack, carry my luggage, carry whatever, and the citizen had to do it by law, but they only had to carry it a mile. You see an example of that in Scripture. Remember when Jesus was carrying his cross and he was so weak from being beaten he couldn't make it to Golgotha? One of the soldiers spoke to Joseph of Arimathea and said, you, come and carry this man's cross. Joseph had to do it. It was law. But did you notice the law said only one mile? If you were carrying a soldier's gear in that culture and you came to the end of the mile, you could slam down the load and said, that's it. That's all I'm required to do. I'm not going a step further. And Jesus is saying, not you. If you're going to follow me, I don't want you to have that attitude. I, I, I want you to have, I don't want you to have the attitude that I'll do a mile if I must do a mile and I'll go no further. No. Jesus is saying, Go the extra mile and do it with gusto. Don't just do enough to get by, Jesus is saying. Never mind this minimum requirement stuff. That's the attitude Abraham's messenger was looking for. And when Rebecca said those wonderful words, yes, I'll give you a drink and I'll water your camels too, when she said those words, she gave more than she was expected to give, and she received more than she could ever even imagine she would ever receive. When she said those words, think about this. When Rebecca said those words, something clicked in the plan of God, and Rebecca herself became part of God's plan for the redemption of the human race. Because Rebekah, wife of Isaac, became the great, 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 and you can add a few more greats in there, grandmother of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it? And I say to you this morning, follower of Jesus Christ, those of you listening to me here today in-house, those of you online, you can never really know the implications, the outcomes when we consistently practice second-mile Christianity. Not only, not only when we practice second-mile Christianity are we saved from the boredom of the mundane, everyday routine, but we get a sense of fulfillment, of sensing the smile of the Father's approval and we get and we're fitting as a link into the divine chain when you practice second mile Christianity. It's so rewarding when we go to work, when we go home, when we go into our neighborhood, when we go into our community, when we go to school and life says to us, will you give me a drink? And we come back with, yes, I'll give you a drink. 
and for your camels too when we go the extra mile. Let me share a final word with you before we close this service today. A final word. With all this teaching today about work and how important it is and the necessity of doing it and the importance of going the second mile, I need to remind you of something this morning. Hear this. Remember that working hard and going the extra mile does not earn you God's favor. I want you to understand this. You already have God's favor. You can't possibly earn it. Let me take you back to a most significant verse. Paul the Apostle, writing to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 8, says, God saved you by his grace, by his special favor, when you believed. You see that? Nothing you could ever earn. You can't work hard enough to ever earn God's favor and his forgiveness. He gives it to you. It's a gift. I need to remind you of that. You can't, and the verse goes on to say, you can't take credit for this. It's not something you did. It's a gift from God. Salvation, and it really, he just says it now again another way, thinking that I've got to get this through people's heads. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You see it? Salvation, it's a gift. Received when? When you believe. What does believe mean? It means when we believe, we repent of our sins. We admit to God that we've sinned. We ask him for his forgiveness. We put our trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And then, when we do that, we have his favor. And going the second mile is really nothing more than an expression of our gratitude to God for his grace. Do you see it? Isn't that awesome? So here's my final word to you today. Take this job and love it. The work that God has given to you, do it and love it. You're a blessed person. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. It's a benefit. So why not go the second mile? What an expression of gratitude to God for his salvation when he sees his followers go the second mile. Will you do it? Let's pray together. Father, you know how easily influenced we are by, by the, the culture's expectation and the norms in our, in our culture and work. It seems people are more interested in getting finished work than doing work in our day. Father, give us Rebecca's view, which is really just Jesus' teachings, and, uh, and the, give us a work ethic that would please you. Oh, Father, let us be second-mile believers, second-mile workers in the home, in the community, in our volunteer work, in the church, in the community, and in, our, in the workplace. And for those that are, are retirees, even, even in our hobbies and our volunteer work, let it be characteristic of us that we're going the second mile in gratitude to the God, our God, who has saved us by his grace. These things we pray in Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.